great singing. You may be seated. Amen. We put Brother Dewey in a bad spot this morning. He volunteered to lead the singing, and our piano player walked out on him. In her defense, she was going home to make chicken soup for her husband. That's a good, good thing. It's a good reason. It also is a good time to do a commercial. If you can play the piano, we always like help around here. Poor Sarah had to come up this morning, play for the early church, and then stay through and play for this one. The Lord keeps growing the work here, and we're glad for it. I told Corbin and Stephanie over there after I walked out, it's good to know we're human. We're not perfect around here. If you thought we were, sorry. Uh, Genesis chapter 6 is where we will be again this morning. As we finish up our series within the series, uh, Noah, Walking with God is the broad series, and as we go through each of the characters, we will see Walking with God, Noah. Next week, we will begin Abram or Abraham and look at him next week. Genesis chapter 6, verses 8 and 9, we've read them the last two weeks. We'll read them again this morning. The Bible says, But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in all his generations. And Noah walked with God. Father, help us today as we put our attention on the fight that is ours in this Christian life. We can say that the steps are simple to walk with you, but the process itself is very difficult. And we'll see, even in Noah this morning, just how true that is. I thank you for men and women of the Bible, whom the Apostle Paul told us in Romans are written for our learning. They're not just stories, they're real people who lived real lives. And so as we come to this one Noah... I pray that this morning we would see what life was like in the new life he had. The old had been washed away. By grace and through faith of entering into that ark, he came out the other side and it was just him, his wife and his boys. And so, Lord, I pray that you would see us understand what he did, that we must live by faith day by day. Bless as I pray in this morning, may the Word of God empower us and enlighten us in Jesus' name. Amen. I put on the very top of your notes this morning, if the world were free from sinners, I'd be able to live perfectly before God. Is that true? I helped you out. What did I write there? Wrong! That is the problem for so many of us. We assume if every other distraction and every other thing that would take us away from God were removed from our life, then we ourselves would have no problems in walking with God. And the answer is, that's not true. It wasn't true for Noah. As we come through the flood and come to the promises and ultimately to the life that Noah was asked to live, we are told this In Genesis chapter 9 and verse 20, if you turn over there and look with me, we are told that Noah himself was no different than you or I. He too made mistakes. He still had a fight that he had to fight. And that's the message this morning, the good fight. Grace is found in the life of Noah. 
Generating faith is found in the life of Noah, but so is the good fight that is worthy of our consideration this morning as well. Here's what the Bible says in verse 20, And Noah began to be an husbandman, and he planted a vineyard, and he drank of the wine and was drunken, and he was uncovered within his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brethren without. And Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon, laid it upon both their shoulders and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were backward, and they saw not their father's nakedness. This is a story that seems tragic, but it is also instructive for us. Today we're going to find out that the statement that is there on the top of your notes is in fact a wrong statement. You and I by nature are sinners. And even if we lived in a perfect world, because of the inborn nature of sin within us, we deserve death. You and I, friends, are in a fight for our souls. We are in a fight for our minds. We are in a fight for our bodies and our activities and our thoughts and our words and our deeds. The world, Satan, and our sinful flesh are set against us doing that which is good and that which is right. And we learn in the life of Noah how we can walk still with God. Noah is the perfect example for us of grace. He found it in the eyes of the Lord. In his generation, we're told as we opened our reading this morning that he was perfect and just, and that was in comparison to those wicked and unjust of his day. But Noah was not sinless. His life was a constant battle against sin, against the world, and against his flesh, just like ours is. This morning we see that those who find grace and have generating faith in God, like Noah, must be engaged in this good fight day by day. Noah had the same decisions that he had to make day by day, just like you do. He could follow his flesh or he could walk with God by faith. Now it's certainly a random example, but if you are a child of the 80s as I was then you're going to know this next illustration, one that probably would have never been in a preacher in the 1970s or 80s. Knowing is half the battle. Some of you got a smile out of that. G.I. Joe was one of my favorite cartoons of the 1980s. There's a lot that you can learn. Oh, go back to it, brother. Don't leave it yet. There's a lot that you can learn from Duke and Flint General Hawk and Gung Ho and all the rest of them. But this, I think, is the basic. And you say, is this Bible? Oh, it's absolutely Bible. G.I. Joe would, at the end of each cartoon, do a PSA. And at the PSA, and the PSAs, by the way, were always fantastic. Like, for example, I learned that you cannot spray paint in your garage with all the doors closed because it'll kill you. How do I know that? Because G.I. Joe told me that. I learned to look both ways when crossing the street. Why? Because G.I. Joe had a PSA, and they told me to look both ways before I crossed the street. Poor Jimmy nearly got wiped out in every end of a G.I. Joe. And Flint, who is the one that is pictured here, came, or gung-ho, or roadblock, or one of the others would come, and they would always say, when the kids would say, I didn't know that, and they would say, now you know. And knowing is half the battle. That's what we're going to talk about. Now you can go off of it because everybody's minds need to be drawn back to the Word of God. That's true in life, my friend. A lot of times we do wrong because we don't 
have a proper knowledge of what is right. We don't have a full understanding of what we ought to know or what things we should know. If we are to engage in the good fight, then there are a few things from Noah that we must know. The good fight begins by knowing God's character. You say, I don't think I find God's character in Genesis chapter 9 and verse 20. Oh no, you find God's character because you find that Noah failed it. He came short of it. As Paul would tell the Romans in Romans 3, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. It is very good for us to read this in the life of Noah so that we know that when he came off the ark, he did not live sinlessly for the rest of his life, but rather in his walk with God, there was a process of fight that had to be his. There was a good fight that he had to take on so that he could maintain that walk with God that was right and proper. Sometimes it is our failures that teach us most clearly of who God is and what God expects. After speaking to Noah at the conclusion of the flood, there isn't any more direct communication that we find God has with Noah, or at least none that's recorded for us. In other words, Noah is asked to obey and follow the God that he knew from the God that had been revealed to him. May I say to you this morning, that's no different than you and I. The walk with God that Noah was asked to have is no different than the walk that you and I are asked to have. We have revealed to us the God of this book, the God of heaven, the God who came to save us. We have the same revelation as Noah. Oh, ours is much more expansive and informational and instructive than Noah's was, but the expectations are no different. And so we must know God's character. We must know who he is and what his expectations are. Walking with God means knowing who He is. It means knowing what is important in motivating us and what should drive us forward. God has revealed Himself to us through His Word. Noah knew two characteristics of God that we also know today. He knew, first, the character of God in His person, letter A. By the way, the person of God is holy. What does it mean to be holy? It means to be different than us, to be set apart from us. Noah knew a few things about God's person, and what he knew all pointed to the fact that God hated sin. Think of what Noah knew and what we've read that Noah could possibly know. We knew that he hated sin. How did he know that? Well, God had expelled Adam from the garden after Adam had sinned. God was gracious, yet firm in his expulsion. He had given a covering to Adam and Eve, but he also had to separate them and kick them out of the garden. There had to be a separation from his holiness because they were now sinners. And he was a holy God who will not stand sin or be in its presence. Noah knew this. This informed him in his walk with God. He was not just walking with a God who would accept him for who he was and how he was in his own sin nature. No, this God was holy. This God would judge sin. This was known to him. And may I say to us this morning, we know that same God. God loves you. That is empirically true from the whole of Scripture. But God also hates the sin that lies within you, and you must, to draw near to Him, forsake that sin. 
Noah knew this. God will not establish communion with one who is active in their sins. Adam's lifespan carried him nearly to Noah's life in the pre-flood world. Adam died in the year 930. Noah was born in the year 1056 before the flood. Seth died 14 years before Noah was born. So the second or the third born child of Adam, but the godly seed after Cain, Seth was, died 14 years before Noah was born. The point that I'm making is that Godly people could inform Noah as to what God actually did in the garden. May I say to you parents this morning, don't stop teaching your children what is right and what is wrong. What Noah knew about God is that God hated sin. And because he hated sin, when Adam sinned in the garden, it caused Adam and man to be separated from God. Not only did he know the history or the lesson that was taught, he knew what he had lived through. Noah knew his own story. God saw the evil continually around Noah, and Noah, because of his walk with God, because of his nature, and because of what he was doing, because of the habits, I should say, that he created, God said to him, Noah, you will be saved. The wickedness was so great that it caused God to act in destroying the wickedness of man. Noah knew, excuse me, that God would be long-suffering, but that even God's long-suffering would end someday. With those two thoughts in mind, what happened to Adam, a relative that he would be very close to knowing, And knowing what happened in his own life, you would think it would be impossible for Noah to ever sin. Yet he did. But I would ask you the same question this morning. If your faith is in Jesus Christ as your Savior, why is it so easy for us to engage in sinful behavior? We too know that in Christ we have received God's grace and that we stand in His righteousness. And that those who do not have Christ's righteousness, according to Jesus, not Kyle, but according to Jesus, they are condemned already in John chapter 3. We have the very same view of the world in salvation that Noah had after coming off the ark. He was walking out into a new life, very evident as to what sin could do to us and what the price of sin was. We in salvation also are aware of that same truth. And yet, we forget God's person and His character and instead go back to engaging in any manner of sin that pleases us. You want to fight the good fight, you have to understand and remember first God's character. That character is in his very person and who he is. I would remind us, by the way, that we are admonished, both Old and New Testament, that because God is holy, we too should be holy if our faith is in him. Writing to, through Moses to the tribe of Levi, who would do the function of the tabernacle and temple ministry, he says to them in Leviticus 20 and verse 7, Sanctify yourselves, therefore, and be ye holy, for I am the Lord your God. He said, look, if you want to come and worship me, you got to be holy like I am. Peter in the New Testament says it this way in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 14, As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, be ye holy, 
for I am holy. To win the good fight, we know the holy character of God's person. Second, we trust in his promises. God is helpful. Can I ask this morning, what is your view of God? So many view God as the white-bearded, austere and angry one, as the far-side comic from so many years ago blasphemously put out, sitting at his computer screen, watching someone walk on the street with a key that says, Smite. And some of you giggle because it's a little funny. We do sometimes think of God that way. He's always out to get me. I think he's right now sitting at the key and ready to strike the button smite so that my life can be miserable. Is that the God you know? Is that the character you know? It would be very easy for Noah to stumble into this thought. Man, God really must hate mankind. No, God loves mankind. If he hated mankind, he would have never built an ark. He would have just let them all die in the flood and start over however he chose to. But he loves mankind. He loves us, we know so much, that he sent his son to die for us. Romans 5 and verse 8, but God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, while we were in that state of enemyhood, Christ died for us. When we consider his character, we don't just look at his person, which is holy. We also look at his promises, which are there to help us. They give us hope in this life. The value of a man are the words to which he's willing to stake himself. I really don't give much stock to someone that won't shake hands on something or make an agreement to something. Why? Because I value a person who's willing to make a commitment or an agreement. God in his promises makes commitments to us that he never falters in. He never fails in. God's character is seen in what he promises, both the conditional and unconditional promises that you can find and read throughout the word of God. According to one author that I was reading, there are some 3,500 different promises in the Bible that God makes to man or to mankind as a race. And I say, good if that's true. Well, haven't you read the Bible front to back and know how many promises there are? I've never stopped to count, I can be honest with you. I know there's a lot. And I know that all of them that are in the Bible that God has made to man, a particular man, or to the race of man, have never failed. Another author said that in the Bible as a whole, when it's God to man, man to God, and man to man, there are some 8,000 promises found in the Word of God. That's even more amazing. The point is promises or giving of our word or making commitments help us to trust one another. There are two realities that help us fight the good fight each day as it pertains to his promises. First, God never fails the promises of the promises that he makes. Joshua chapter 23 and verse 14, And behold, this day, Joshua says, I'm going the way of all the earth. And you know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one thing hath failed of all the good things which the Lord our God spoke concerning you. All are come to pass unto you, and not one thing hath failed thereof. Boy, that's an amazing statement. 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 56, Solomon at the completion of the temple is admonishing the people as they're gathered, and he says this, Blessed be the Lord that hath given a rest unto his people Israel, according to all that he promised. There hath not failed one word of all his good promise 
which he promised by the hand of Moses, his servant. The second thing that comforts us is that God is comfortable making promises. Did, did God have to make us a promise on anything? I mean, I'm stopping asking in a theological realm, not in the, well, yeah, I think he owes me realm. He doesn't owe you anything, by the way. In the theological realm, is there any reason God should commit to you anything? No. Yet he does. Boy, what an awesome thought that is. What a loving thought. What a compassionate God he is. He's comfortable making us promises. And within those promises, the comfort level comes from his very character. He keeps his word. Who is it that keeps his word? Jesus Christ himself. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20 say this, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, even by me and Silvanus and Timothy, was not yea and nay. Paul says, look, I didn't come preaching to you some confusing promises. These are committal promises. These are absolute truths. These are ways in which God will keep his word. They're not yea and nay, but in him, in Jesus Christ, was yea. For all the promises of God in Him, in Christ, are yea or yes and amen. That means in Him it's settled. So be it. Under the glory of God by us. Jesus made promises to us that Noah could have only dreamed about. Noah had the promise of the seed of a Savior that came through Adam's line. He had the promise that the animals would fear him from the early verses of chapter 9. He had the promise that he could be fruitful and he could multiply so long as he acted in, God, in good faith towards God. And he also had the promise that God in the rainbow would, told him that he would never destroy the earth again with the flood. Those were the sum of the promises that Noah had. Yet he walked with God. Friend, can I tell you from the pages that we're on in the Bible here through the rest, those are all promises that we have that Noah never knew. We have far more reason to trust God than Noah did. And you say, yeah, but he just rode out like a year and 10 days in an ark. I mean, he had every reason to trust God. May I say to you, if you live in this book, you've got many more reasons to trust God than he ever did. That's the truth of living in the day that we do in the grace that has been given to us. We have superior promises. In fact, the book of Hebrews tells us that. Peter tells us that we have precious promises that are from God. Jesus, in his promises to the believer, promises the believer rest in Matthew 11 and verse 28. In John 10 and verse 10, he promises abundant life. In John 3 and verse 16, he promises everlasting life. In John 10 and verse 28, Jesus promises the protection and preservation of the life that he gives to us. You do not have to keep your eternal soul. God the Father and God the Son do that. John 10 verses 27 and 28. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, he promises us power in the life that we live on this earth through the Holy Spirit's presence. In John 14 and verse 2, he promises to rescue or rapture the believers, either alive, that are alive and remain, or those who are in the grave. We will be bodily glorified because he will return for us. When Noah stepped off the ark, it was a new life that he was asked to live. May I say to you, the moment you ask Jesus Christ to save you from your sins, you step out into a new life that you too are asked to live. And you best live it by what you know 
of the character of God Himself, in His person and in His promises. Knowing God's character will help us in the good fight. Next, we should learn and know sin's challenges. Why do we sin? And some of you are thinking, well, that's why we came this morning. We figured you would bear the bad news. You would tell us what our problem is. Well, my job is not to tell you what the problem is. My job is to tell you what the truth is. Why do we sin? I think if it was a Bible study hour and we could just let responses come in, we could be here for a while and it'd probably be pretty revealing about each of us, right? What we would say, well, I sin because... Be careful. Can I tell you the basic Bible reason why you sin? Because you're sinners. That's cheap. Well, being a pastor is to just give you the Bible. You're by nature a sinner. You, by nature, have sin in you. Here's the principle as it plays out. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 22, the Bible says, For as in Adam all die. That's our lineage father. Even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Boy, there's great hope for the New Testament believer in that second one. But where Noah was living, he was in the first half of that because Christ had not come yet. For as in Adam, all die. All are sinners. That point is, in biblical terms, sin is present in us. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, we read this. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men. For that all have sinned. It's not just that sin is present in us, but it's that sin is personal to us as well. James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. This is the process of sin. So we see that sin is present in us. We find that sin is personal to us. And that we also see that sin has a process that works in us. In our passage this morning, we read that Noah drank to drunkenness, and the result of his lustful indulgence was that he was exposed. That's what sin does. It exposes who we really are. Now, don't confess to it openly here, but in your heart and before God. We've all sinned and said this in our hearts immediately after. Why did I do that? Where'd that come from? Usually that happens to me when I'm driving in traffic. (laughs) Someone cuts me off. And Jessica's like, the boys, the boys, the boys, the boys in the back, the boys. Where'd that come from? Why did I get so angry so quickly? Probably because I learned how to drive on the beltway outside of Washington, D.C., and it's just inborn into it. No, it's because of my sin nature. Here, Noah was exposed literally, but also metaphorically. Sin exposes who we are. The second sin that we read in the passage was of Ham, who dishonored his father rather than covering his father's nakedness. We find in this what his two brothers did was right and what he did was wrong. How do we know that? Proverbs chapter 10 and verse 12, Hatred stirreth up strifes, but love covereth all sins. If Ham had only taken the approach of Shem and Japheth, he would not have been listed and labeled as to receive a curse, as we'll read in just a few moments. But he chose to dishonor and disrespect his father. 
1 Peter 4 and verse 8 says, And above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity, for love, shall cover the multitude of sins. Ham's mockery and rebellious, rebelliousness caused the family strife and turmoil. By the way, when we sin against one another in our families, in our church family, in our communities, in our country, and in our culture, it brings a curse upon us, just like it did in Ham's home. There's an old saying about sin, by the way. Many of you will know it as soon as I start saying it. Sin takes you further than you want to go, keeps you longer than you want to stay, and costs you more than you're willing to pay. That's what sin does. Sin has a way of causing good people and godly families to divide and split up, and that's what happened here. There was difficulty that flowed from this sinful behavior. Make no mistake, sin is pleasurable. No one says, man, I hate that sin. It's terrible. I don't want to do it. I don't want to be engaged in that and then go do it. Sin is pleasurable for a season. Moses is told in Hebrews chapter 11, or it is said of him, I should say, he chose to reject the sins of pleasure that are for a season. He put away that life of Pharaoh's daughter. There are two considerations in sin that challenge our thinking as it pertains to the good fight that we're engaged in. And this first one is theologically deep, and that is this. It is man's depravity. The first challenge is how depraved we are. How would you respond this morning if I said, hey, I'm glad you're as depraved as I am? Would you feel great about that? I mean, theologically, I'm correct in saying that, but practically, you want to punch me in the nose. If I came out here this morning and the title of my message was, Hey, you bunch of depraved people, would you have stuck around? No, you wouldn't have. But theologically, biblically, there's a truth to it. Why did Noah sin? There was no reason to. And the answer is because Noah was depraved. The depravity of man means that we are as bad off as we can be. Now, catch the the thought there. When we think of depravity the way that we've learned it in our modern parlance, in our modern uh, language and conversation, we look at being depraved as actions that I deem bad. I'm not talking in that practical sense. I'm talking in the theological sense. Man is depraved. It has nothing to do with how I make an assessment of you or you make an assessment of me. It has everything to do with God's estimation of us. Biblically, we are depraved in our nature. We're sinners. Biblically, depravity has to do with God's estimation of man, not man's assessment of himself. Well, I'm not as bad as that person. I'm not as depraved as them. Right, but you're missing the point. God sees us all the same way, depraved, sinful. Well, that changes how we look at people. I'm no better than anybody else then. I can say with the great apostle Paul, but by the grace of God, there go I. I can understand that statement in its fullest because I understand at my core, at my base, I'm as depraved as they are. I have the potential to do any sin that they do. It doesn't excuse their sin, but it explains our state. When Adam sinned, his nature was changed. It went from being untried in its innocence to a nature that was now confirmed 
wayward or missing the mark, sinful. If we wanted to delve deep into the theology of it, man's suke, his soul, became sin at that moment. That's why Jesus asked, what would a man give in exchange for his suke, his soul, in Matthew 8 and verse 37. Later on in John chapter 15, Jesus would say this, there's no greater love that a man can have than to lay down his life. That word life is his suke. It's the same word, suke, very same Greek word. In other words, Christ exchanged his nature for mine. We sing that song, his robes for mine. What wonderful release, what a wonderful truth that is. Adam could do good things. He could go about and be kind to his wife and play with his children and do that which was necessary. But he himself was no longer good. In his very core, his nature. His nature was sin. Jesus says that we are of our father, the devil, in John 8 and verse 44. Why? Because in that sin, Adam gave up the parentage of God the Father, his creator, to become subservient to his new father, the devil himself. That's what his nature in sin is bound to. An absolute of creation is that kind creates after kind. I've never seen a cow give birth to a cat. Truth be told, I've never seen a cow give birth to a calf. I don't think I want to. Ken and Lauren are sitting back there laughing because they see it all the time. The point is, is that I don't ever see a horse having a dog or a dog having a monkey. It's an absolute of creation. Kind begets kind. So when Adam sinned, his kind became depraved. And when he begat and begat and begat, when you read that word in the Bible, you can read, he begat another sinner, whatever the name is. By the way, that helps when you get to 1 Chronicles, chapters 1 through 9, because you can't read those names. There are a lot of them. Just be, you could just read, he begat another sinner. He begat another sinner. He begat another sinner because it's by our nature. We are depraved. It answers the question, our depravity, how a good man could sin. Have you ever found yourself saying, well, I don't know how a good person could do that. And the answer is, we're depraved as a race. The answer is most clear from the Apostle Paul in his great lamenting chapter, Romans chapter 7. He says this in verse 17 and 18, For I know... That in me, that is, in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. He's basically saying, I am depraved. For to will, this is his spiritual man, is present with me. But how to perform that which is good, I find not. He goes, it's just not in me. Because in his nature, he's depraved. We might then say theologically of Noah here, Noah sinned because he was a sinner. He was under sin, he was under the sentence of condemnation, and he was in the state of death. But it doesn't stop there, sin's challenge. In other words, this is the fight we're in. I wish I just didn't have to sin, Pastor. Well, you're going to be in this fight until you're glorified, and your nature is changed in your glorified body. This is the fight. It's a good one. But if you're not aware that you're just as bad a sinner as I am, and I'm just as bad a sinner as the worst of mankind, if we don't understand in our core how we're depraved, there's nothing that we can really do in this fight because we're hamstrung. We're fighting with one arm. The second is that our hearts are deceitful. Oh, the heart's deceitfulness is real. 
I'm sure Noah, the husbandman, was good at his craft. I talked to Ken and Lauren and Arnaldo last week, their guests that had come, and they're all three veterinarians. And on the way out, they told me, you know, when he got off the ark, I bet no chance did Noah stick around any of those animals. And we actually find proof of it here, Brother Ken, in chapter 9 and verse 20. It says, Noah became a husbandman. You know what that means? He planted a vineyard, it continues by telling us. Man, I am done with animals. Could you imagine being cooped up in an ark for that long with animals tending to him? I'd be done with them too. The problem for Noah came when he trusted in his own work in his garden, in his vineyard. When he trusted in his own craft, when he trusted that he would only go so far but no further. His drunkenness shows us the fact that he was out of control or the lack of self-control over his own spirit. Remember back in James chapter 1, we said every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. This is the process of the deceitfulness of our heart. It draws us away from God. We deceive ourselves thinking that we can control sin and that we can control sinfulness in our own power, and you cannot. Prophet Jeremiah said this in Jeremiah 17 and verse 9, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? If you want to win the good fight, if you want to succeed in the new life that God has provided for you, then know sin's challenges that come to you, that you by nature are depraved and that your heart nurtures deceitfulness continually, wanting to do that which is against God. Knowing God's character. Knowing sin's challenges brings us to our final thought this morning, and that is knowing Noah's choices. Noah was a man who knew the grace of God. I hope this morning you have received the grace of God that has appeared to all men, the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. I pray and trust that you put your faith in Him. If you have, then there is a lifetime of choices that you must make. One of the core realities of the Bible is that God has given mankind the choice to obey Him. Whether it's Moses or Elijah or Joshua or Peter or Paul or any other great men of the Bible that led God's people, they will always put a stake in the ground that says, Choose whom you will obey. Moses says, Choose life or death. Joshua tells them to choose whom they will obey. As for he and his house, they'll serve the Lord. It's interesting what the prophet Jeremiah said. I read read chapter 17 and verse 9, but what is the context of our heart is deceitful and desperately wicked? You would imagine that it would come within the context of a really rough and tumble society. They were bad, but notice where it falls actually in the context of the scripture and notice the choice that is ours. Jeremiah 17 and verse 5, the Bible says, Thus saith the Lord, Cursed be the man that trusteth in man. Don't trust yourself. Don't trust in your own flesh. And maketh flesh his arm, and whose heart departeth from the Lord. For he shall be like the heath in the desert, and shall not see when good cometh, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness, in a salt land, and not inhabit it. In other words, there'll be a desert wasteland of a life. Blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord, and whose hope the Lord is. For he shall be as a tree planted by the waters, and that spreadeth out her roots by the river, and shall not see when heat cometh. But her leaf shall be green, and shall not be careful, shall not be worried in the year of drought, neither shall cease from yielding fruit. The heart 
is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? He's saying, look, if you will trust in the Lord, you will be living right. But if you trust yourself, good luck. That's the fight right there. It's what Noah had to face as soon as he came off the ark. It's what you as a Christian, young, growing, or mature, it's the choice you have to make every day. Who will I serve? Whom will I please? Noah had to make choices, and he had to realize which choices, what those choices were. First was the choice in his flesh. The things of the flesh feel good to our natural man. They are destructive, they are deceptive, yet they are delightful. That's the problem with our flesh. It's only based on feelings. That's the danger of the modern world. We live in a feelings-based society. I am not here to hurt your feelings. I'm here to present facts from the Word of God and truth that you can make proper judgment on. Oh, Pastor, I don't like the way you said that. Well, if I said it with a hurtful intention, that's on me. But if I said it from the Word of God, then that's on you. If you're running afoul of truth because the truth doesn't line up with your feelings, then I'm sorry that your feelings are that way, but you're trusting the flesh. That's what Paul was saying back there in Romans 7 and verse 18 in the beginning of that verse. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. He said, you've got to know that. Noah's sin is far from the most egregious, drunkenness. Yet it demonstrates that there were a lot of choices that led to that ultimate state of drunkenness. It wasn't like he finished his vineyard and said, I'm going to get out of my mind drunk and fall over in my tent naked. That's not how Noah woke up that morning. It was one choice after another choice after another choice that left his nature exposed to his own children. That he himself was sinful. We're not told the pathway to that point. We're just introduced to him in that drunken state so that we might learn that choices in life matter as we walk with God. Equally, we are not told how the scorn and mockery and disrespect had grown in the life of Ham and seemingly in his own children, for it's Canaan who is later cursed. But when dad was exposed in sin, Ham did not respectfully cover his father's sinfulness. Instead, he acted in flesh. And mocked his father. Noah's choices ultimately let her be should be in faith, as ours should be. We aren't told much about the remedy. We pick up the reading in verse 24 and it says this, And Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done unto him. And he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be unto his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. God shall enlarge Japheth, and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. It's an interesting comment. There's been many in two centuries, uh, two centuries ago and prior that have used and corrupted and read between the lines that this promotes slavery. It doesn't. It simply is actually looking forward to what will begin looking in the life of Abraham. That Abraham, when he's called out of Ur of the Chaldees, a son of Shem, a Semite, would come back to the land of Canaan. He would drive them out and those inhabitants of Canaan, the descendants of this one boy who was cursed, would in fact serve the Israelites who would come from the seed of Abram. That's all the reference is to here. It doesn't speak that it's okay to enslave anybody. But in faith, Noah declares what God would make so. Think of the power in that. 
Think of the faith in that, that when I make the right choices, then I can make declarative statements. We do not need to live in doubt as Christians. We can make statements that are built upon God's person and his promises, and those things can be. I can be holy. I can be just. I can live within his promises. You say, how can you be sure? Because Noah was. So can we. It's a choice to walk with God. In closing this morning, Noah is a man in whom grace is found. We looked at that three weeks ago. Against the godless backdrop, Noah had genuine belief in God's benevolence. That's how grace was found in his life and how he found the grace of God in his life. Noah is a man who had generating faith or faith that was productive. It rescued him from destruction, it readied him for deliverance, and it rewarded him with delight. And this morning, we note that Noah is a man who fought the good fight. How so? By knowing God's character, by knowing sin's challenges, and by his own personal choices. So three questions and we close this morning. First, do you know the God 